How's everybody doing this morning? Wonderful. Y'all hungry for the word? Yay. How many of you thought all week long about throwing bricks in outhouses? Has that carried through anybody? You know, the Lord gives us all a, a supply of bricks. We can either build with them or we can throw them. So, you know, that's an image that'll, that'll linger, won't it? Listen, I want to start with this because I want you to be able to write this down for you note takers. I forgot to mention it last week. Um, at the end of every study, I'm going to recommend that through the week you read based on what I have taught. And so this is where we're going to be heading in part today. So for your notes, I want you to write that down because I want you to be like the Bereans who heard the word with all readiness of mind, but searched the scriptures daily to prove whether these things be so. You should always go back to the word and make sure that I haven't made a mistake. In fact, I did make one mistake yesterday. I realized a couple days later, I told you that the King James said that the sum of the book is written of me, I delight to do your will. That's not true. The King James says the volume of the book. And even those kinds of little slips, uh, it just it kills me when I make them because this is the word of God. I can give you a lot of opinions, but what we want to do is always go straight to the word and make sure that we are rightly dividing the word of truth. So this is going to help you to... Um, prove whether these things be so, and to make this study even more real to you. Remember, it's a sword that we're training ourselves to use. So get it out every day and practice um, according to the word. So having said that, let's just review quickly. Last week, we learned that Moab was a type of the flesh. It's a model that the Holy Spirit uses uh, to illustrate what we are like when we are all about the flesh and not walking in the spirit. And we saw that King Eglon of Moab was just like our flesh, self-indulgent, never satisfied, always consuming, just an ugly picture of gluttonous self-indulgence. But... We also saw that when the double-edged sword of the word of God goes into the very heart of who we are, it drives the dirt right out. All of the sin in our life is driven out when we apply rightly this double-edged sword of the word of God. Um, we can be victorious over the flesh, praise God, but it's not by our own might or our own power or our own talent or money or any other thing. It is only by the spirit of the living God. So here we go, ladies. Welcome to the study of the book of Ruth. Turn to Genesis chapter 19. <laughs> because as I said, this little four chapter book will take us from Genesis to Revelation as we are studying together. And it's important to get this historical background because we know that when Ruth enters our story for good and proper, she is a Moabite. What did it mean to be a Moabite back in the day? This story is a sad, very unseemly one. Uh, it is the origin of the nation Moab. And all those nations began with a single individual. And so this is the story of the origin of Mr. Moab. Now, by the time we get to this portion of scripture, we are in Sodom and Gomorrah with a guy named Lot. And Sodom and Gomorrah 
uh, the effects that that culture had on everyone who lived in it were, those effects were pervasive and they were debasing. And they, the people had a judgment that was so skewed, they had no idea what right was any longer. They were at peace, that is, a secession of war. There was no war that they were fighting, but they were not at peace with God. And we know from Matthew chapter five that we are told, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Abraham was a peacemaker. He believed God and God reckoned that to him as righteousness. And that's what a peacemaker is. It's someone who believes God at his word. And this is a subtle thing, but it's crucial. He doesn't believe in God, he believes God. And we need to be sure that we are not just saying to the world, I believe in God, that's too vague. I believe God, he said it, I believe it, that's the end of it for me. And that's what Abraham did. He went so far as to willingly sacrifice his son. And that was a picture for us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we put our faith in as believers in, in uh, Christ. He wants, the Father wants us to live in that kind of peace, at peace with God. And that just automatically will spill over to be peace with men. Even when the whole world is caving in around me, I can walk in perfect peace. I don't understand it. But that even too fulfills scripture. It's a peace that passes understanding. But the world can be a torrent around me and I can still be perfectly at peace with my God. So in order to have this and understand it, he's given us the Holy Spirit and the word. And by these things, we know that he is a loving and kind God. I have some friends who are going through a very difficult um, medical crisis right now. And it doesn't look like there's a short end in sight. This man has been afflicted with something that is so incredibly rare that only of the people who get this thing, only 1% of those people have it invade the brain. And so he is right now undergoing treatment directly into his brain to try to kill a fungus that has taken hold deep in his brain. And it's a very hard thing. Um, we are praying diligently for him and his family. He's a father. He has four kids. And uh, it's just one of those things. You, you look at it and you're going, where did this come from? Why, Lord? Why are you doing this to this man who loves you so much? I don't know why. But the perfect peace of God can come alongside even that kind of a situation and carry you through. That doesn't mean it got easier just for him to, to, because he's suffering. He's physically suffering. And it's taking an emotional toll on him. But still, the peace of God can carry through any circumstance, whatever it may be. In this very sad story of Sodom and Gomorrah, I see a type or a model that God uses to, to display to us his pattern of behavior toward his own. Remember that uh, the conversation between the Lord and Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, and Abraham confirmed to us that God would not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And so they, uh, the Lord sends two angels into Sodom to remove righteous Lot. If you can explain that to me, I will, I will be amazed. Uh, but the New Testament declares it so, that, right, that Lot was a righteous man. So these two angels go 
to deliver him and he won't go. They physically have to take him by the hand and drag him out of this city. He is, as we pick up this story, one of the city elders. So we're going to read verse one and then we're going to kind of hopscotch through the chapter. It says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Lot is one of the city elders. If you're sitting in the gate of the city back in the day, that means you're like the mayor of the town or someone who has authority. So here is this guy, Lot. He was rescued just a few chapters ago and the entirety of Sodom and Gomorrah from some conquering kings. Abraham had gone out and rescued them and brought them all back. So I just wonder if the city gave Lot a little deferential treatment because his uncle was the guy that saved them all. I don't know. Again, when you get to heaven, you can ask. I have a few questions, Lot. In fact, I have a lot of questions about you. But anyway, he calls the men of the city brothers. Remember how the effects of a broken culture are pervasive. And that's what we see happening here. In, for your notes, Second Peter, chapter two, verses seven and eight. The Lord says that He rescued Lot, who was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. He was tormented every day, but he still sat in the gates of the city and he still called them brothers. There's a cautionary tale. I'll let you all apply that as the Lord sees fit. But even in this very debased culture and in this one that we're living in now, there is hope in Christ. He is mighty to save still. And it's it's an amazing picture of reaping and sowing. Lot and his family have sown acres and acres of seeds living in Sodom, and they're about to reap the ugly harvest of all that time spent with those uh, debased people. Um, We are called by Hosea to sow seeds of righteousness and reap in accordance with kindness. It is time to seek the Lord until he comes again. And that is what the Lord has called us to do, to every day, no matter what our culture, we are to sow seeds of righteousness, no compromise. Verse 15, when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, take up your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men, that means the angels, seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. Now, before we continue with this forced evacuation, I want you to know that Lot had other children living in Sodom. He had married children, possibly grandchildren still living there. That's a a sidebar lesson. Um, Our testimony is so crucial in this day that people watching us will see that we are not going to compromise with this world. Sadly, his own children would not believe his testimony. When he went to tell his sons and sons-in-law and grandchildren, whoever all was in that crowd, when he went to tell them destruction is coming, they laughed at him. His testimony held no 
weight with them at all. His spiritual leadership was a joke. We live in these really wicked times right now, and our testimony, our spiritual leadership is gonna be challenged and scrutinized every day. So how are you doing, Christian? This is one of those things you hold up the mirror of God's word and you say, Lord, how am I doing before you? It's that search me, oh God, and know my heart and try me and know my thoughts. And if there's any wicked way at all in me, Lord, please get rid of it and then lead me in the everlasting way. So back to Lot. The angels grab him by the hand, his wife and his daughters too, and they drag them out before God's righteous judgment can fall. But sadly, of course, on the way out of Dodge, Lot's wife turns and looks back over at Sodom. Now remember, she possibly had grandchildren and, and so forth, but her heart was all about Sodom. I mean, they had the best shops and restaurants and theaters there, and all of her friends were there, and she longed for Sodom, and that was her beloved home. Always be careful, ladies, because the heart will always make a convert of the mind. And where your heart is, there your treasure will be. And we are called to guard our hearts with all diligence because from our heart flows a wellspring of life. And her heart, sadly, belonged to Sodom. She's turned into a pillar of salt and Lot and his two daughters are then carried off without her. So here's the pattern that I think God is really, uh, revealing to us. It's his MO, remove the righteous, and then judgment falls on those who reject God's love and his forgiveness. I am a pre-tribber. I think that the tribulation, the tribulation, that the rapture is the next thing on God's prophetic calendar, and it could happen any minute. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we could be out of this room. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But I think, yes, yes. So anyway, we see this pattern established throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes it's in prophecy, sometimes it's in a vision, but this is God's pattern. And I love that Jesus, right before he went to the cross, among the many, many beautiful things that he shared with his disciples, he said to them in John chapter 14, verse 29. Now, he tells the disciples, I'm going to go be crucified. I told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. And that's his pattern. The Old Testament, he tells us everything he planned to do in, in the um, plan of our salvation. What is it gonna take to redeem a sinner? Here it is, laid out for you in the entire Old Testament, and then we see it fulfilled and magnified in the person of Jesus Christ in the new. That's his pattern, and I am grateful for it. And it's so that we can live and move and have our being in that kind of peace, knowing that God has a plan. He has a plan for our good. And part of that plan is to get us out of here before his judgment falls. Hallelujah. Enoch is another one of those types of deliverance. Enoch was a man, it says very simply in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him, just snatched him right up. And sometimes when you talk about these things, people will say, well, what about Noah? Noah had to go through it. Noah is a type of the Jewish people. They will go through the great tribulation, but I believe the bride of Christ will be evacuated out of every city worldwide before the judgment falls. And again, that could happen any minute. So Genesis chapter 19, verse 17, 
It says, when they, speaking of the angels, when they had brought them outside, one of the angels said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. Now, through many dangers, toils, and snares, because Lot hasn't quite learned his lesson yet, he's going to ham and haw. Eventually, they're going to wind up in a cave with the valley smoldering at their feet and the smell of sulfur in the air. And these two daughters of Lot, who have been raised in a debased, vile culture, look around and they go, now what are we going to do? There are no more men left. We're not married and we don't have any children. What's going to happen to us? Listen, raised in Sodom and desperate, that's a very dangerous combination. And so these two girls who, in accordance with the cultural belief of their day, because ladies, if you didn't get married and you didn't have children, you didn't really have a very big purpose in the world. And so they're looking around and desperate times call for desperate measures. And so the first daughter... Yeah, this is, it's going to read like today's headlines. It's a sad, sad story. This again, though, is one of the proofs to me that the Bible is the word of God. Because if I wrote this, I would have edited this story right out. God does not flinch. He calls sin, sin. He tells us what it looks like. And then he tells us how to overcome it. And these people need a savior. And Jesus Christ is the the one and true living God, our savior. So in verse 31, It says, then the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth. Can you believe that? It's just the valley that's smoldering. Why don't you go over the mountain to the next place? Why don't you go up to Uncle Abraham and find out if he's got any, you know, shepherds that, you know, are single. Anyway, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. You see, their hearts, their minds are completely set on the things of earth, not on the things of heaven. That's what the flesh does. Verse 32. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. I'd like to know where they get the wine. Okay, you're on a forest evacuation. An angel is grabbing you by the hand and pulling you out. Oh, pardon me, I just need to grab this wine. I don't understand it, but wherever they got it, they got a lot of it. I would have thought before I read this, there wasn't enough wine on the planet. But anyway. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night Also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both daughters were of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Sin will always give birth to the flesh, and that is the origin of Moab. Now, King Eglon, the very fat man, became the type of people that the nation Moab evolved into. 
powerful and prosperous, yes, but also arrogant and completely self-indulgent. It is that picture of the flesh and that prideful self-confidence. Wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death, right? That's what the writer of the Romans says, Romans 7, 24. Who can save me from this body of death? And then he follows it up with saying, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I echo that with a big amen. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He is my deliverer. It is he that saves me from this body of death. The prophet of Jeremiah is going to tell us about the process. Because being saved from this body of death is a process. And I am sorry to tell you that despite the fact that I have walked with the Lord for decades now, I still am having to go over some old territory again and again and again. Is there anybody else in here that does that? Same old, same old, and you're like, Lord, here I am again saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Oh, the gracious goodness of God. But we're gonna see what the process looks like from the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 48. This is another story that involves the nation Moab as a type of our flesh. So when you're reading this on your own, I would say every so often substitute the word flesh when you see the word Moab and see how it reads to you and then say, my flesh, because this is talking about you and me. Uh, Let's see. So we're going to start in verse 11, Jeremiah 48, verse 11. And again, we're just going to pick out a few select verses. That's why I recommend you read the whole chapter for yourself when, you're, uh, when you have time. Are you there? Okay, here we go. Moab, insert my flesh. My flesh has been at ease since its youth. It has also been undisturbed like wine on its dregs, and he has not emptied from vessel, has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. That meant that in the day, the nation Moab had never been conquered. Okay? Therefore, he retains his flavor, and his aroma has not changed. Verse 29. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness, his pride, his arrogance, and his self-exaltation. Verse 30, I know his fury, declares the Lord, but it is futile. His idle boasts have accomplished nothing. Does that sound like the flesh to you? Verse 42, Moab will be destroyed from being a people because he has become arrogant toward the Lord. Verse 11 in the King James says, Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his lees. The New American calls them dregs. King James calls them lees. This is winemaking terminology. Um, the clarity, the purity, and the taste or the usefulness of wine was determined by a skillful winemaker. And the process of pouring the wine from vessel to vessel is part of the maturing process. And this is what we are supposed to be doing, ladies, as we walk with the Lord. It separates, this process separates the lees, or the dregs, from the good wine. 
Now the leaves, what is it? When you smash, when you um, harvest the grapes, you know, you're gonna get leaves and twigs and bugs and all that jazz. And you're going to smash them down and now you've got the skins. All of that debris is what uh, the Bible calls the lees or the dregs. And so when you have a vessel with this smashed grape juice with all the bits and bobs, all the heavy stuff is going to begin to filter down and settle on the bottom. If you don't then pour off the good that's up on top, what happens is the stuff in the bottom begins to sour and stink and it will putrefy the whole container. It is so important that a skillful winemaker is on hand to watch this process and know exactly when it's time to pick up that vessel and pour it into one that is fresh and clean. This is what the process of purification looks like. Wine was meant to be symbolic of joy. And we are his joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. But we are meant to be the joy of the Lord. That blows my mind. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of God. Y'all, when Jesus was hanging on that cross, your image was right in front of his eyes. You are his joy. Your salvation brings him great joy. And you're maturing with him, growing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man every day brings him joy. But it requires a little discomfort on our part from time to time. And that is the pouring process. If we are not poured from time to time by his skillful hand, we will putrefy. We need to be poured out so that we can be separated from all the worthless dregs in our life, especially when we've been resting on them for a good long time. And I think it's an important thing to do frequently. Lord, what are the dregs in my life? What part of my flesh am I still tolerating or even cultivating? And then the last thing I, I ask myself frequently is what earthly treasure, upon what earthly treasure am I depending? Am I looking back to Sodom with longing in my heart? God is more interested in making us fit for heaven than he is in making us comfortable here and now. The blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from all sin. He began that good work in you and in me, and he is going to continue that good work until you get out of that earth suit. It's so important for us to not panic when the Lord begins to pour us out. It's so easy to become settled in a routine, in a family member, in a home, in a job, in a paycheck, whatever the thing might be, even in a ministry. This is mine, Lord. And then the Lord says, no, let's take you out of that into a new clean vessel. But I don't want to. I'm comfortable over here. That's too bad. I heard John Corson once say about a ministry, you want to find out how valuable you are in any ministry? Get a bucket of water. Put your finger in it. Pull your finger out and see how long it takes the hole to fill. The Lord is going to fill the hole and he may have something far grander than that hole you were occupying. 
important lessons. Thomas Akempis, about 500 years ago wrote, who has a harder fight than he who is striving to overcome himself? Ouch, because we like to be comfortable. I love to be comfortable, y'all. I am a no fuss, no must chick. I would sit around and do nothing all day if I wasn't called upon to do something else. I just like things to be nice and easy and comfortable. Can you relate to that? And yet, being at our ease, like Jeremiah describes Boab, can lead to a stagnant, putrefied, self-indulgent dependence on all those things rather than a humble dependence on my sweet Savior. It is no shock to me when you read through the Old Testament in Psalm 60, verse 8, and repeat it again in Psalm 108, verse 9, that God calls Moab his washpot. A wash pot was a vessel that was used for washing feet back in the Middle East in the, back in the day. And no matter what you did to that pot, it was thoroughly contemptible for any other use. No matter how much you scrubbed and polished it, it was still a foot washing pot. In fact, it could also be translated toilet bowl. Moab is my toilet bowl. And we're throwing bricks in it sometimes. Listen. In the flesh, in our flesh, we are living in these debased, contemptible vessels that we have chosen. But God wants to pour us out and pour us into something new. But our degree of usefulness in this whole process is completely dependent on our submission to the Lord as he begins to pour us out. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Lord tells us about vessels in his household. And I love this portion. So it's 2 Timothy 2, verses 19 through 21. And he tells us the future of all the different vessels in his household, the purpose, what can they be used for in his economy? He says, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Then he gives an example. What does this look like in his household? Now, in a large house, there are, are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware. That would be clay pots. And some are used for honor and some to dishonor, like to wash feet or the chamber pot. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, all those assorted wickednesses, he will be a vessel for honor. Don't you now listen? Don't you want your name attached to this? A vessel for honor, sanctified, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. That sounds like a good deal to me. It's a vessel that can hold the precious purified wine of joy. We have to trust the winemaker to purify us, though, because uh, the change is going to be uncomfortable very often. We have to trust him that he knows what he's doing, and the vessel we're going into is far better than the one we're leaving behind. Now, there's a couple of other stories. We won't have time to go into these, and I want you to read them on your own, uh, that have to do with Moab because we learn so much about the flesh and how to conquer it from all these different stories cumulatively. In Numbers chapter 22 verses, uh, or excuse me, chapter 22 through verse 25, we read a story of Balak 
who is the king of Moab. And he hires a man named Balaam to come and curse the nation Israel. Now, it's a long story, talking donkey and everything, but the short version of it is, they go up on a mountaintop and Balaam wants the loot. So he wants to do what the king is paying him to do, curse Israel. But he said, hey, I can only speak what God gives me to say. And so the Lord will only allow him to pour out blessings on the nation Israel. Now, this is during the wilderness wandering when they're just camped out there on the desert floor. And so blessing, 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 disgruntled employer, give me back my money. And so Balaam says, well, that's not gonna work. You cannot make God abandon his people in this way. However, I've got an idea. Why don't you, king of Moab, get all your best looking girls and have them walk around the camp of Israel and entice the men of Israel away from their God. Their God will abandon them. Now, these girls go around and they say, hey, big fella, let me show you how we worship our gods over in Moab. And of course, before you know it, the men are going along with these Moabitish women. And they worship, it says in Numbers chapter 25, they began to, before long, Israel was joining in the worship of Baal of Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against the people. And you will see if you read this story that God does judge the people, but he does not destroy them. There is a plague he sends, and it results in the death of about 24,000 Israelites. And generations will pass from this instance before the nation Israel has had enough of idol worship. But what they didn't account for when they said God will abandon his people for their gross sin is that the God of Israel cannot lie. And he made a promise to Abraham. And it didn't matter whether we are worthy of the promise or not. He is faithful, and he will keep his promise to a thousand generations. So God punished them, but he did not abandon them because he is our faithful, faithful God. One other quick story that I hope you will read for yourselves later about Moab is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And in this story, Moab and, and its allies have come against Israel, and King Jehoshaphat takes this concern to the Lord. There's an enemy army out there in force and they're gonna destroy us. And do you know how he fights the battle against Moab, AKA our flesh? He assembles the praise and worship team. And he says, we are gonna praise our God. And they begin to worship and they praise the Lord and the Lord gives them a mighty victory. He causes confusion in the camp and Moab and all of its allies out there start fighting each other. And it started because they fixed their eyes on God and began to praise him for who he is and magnify his name. And he gave them a mighty victory that day over the flesh of Moab. All of these stories are great. They inform our minds as we go into the book of Ruth. We learn so much about what it means to be a Moabite so that when our sweet heroine Ruth walks into O little town of Bethlehem, we know she's carrying all this baggage with her. They hated Moabites in, in Israel in Ruth's day. And they know her history, her family history. Doesn't it make you feel a whole lot better about your own, y'all? When you go sit around your Thanksgiving table, you have cause for rejoicing. 
But she comes in bearing all of this ancestry with her. And you will see that as you continue to study through your Old Testament that these people groups hate each other. Uh, on one side of the Jordan, Naomi is going to be hated. And on the other side, Ruth is going to be hated. And they're going to make this journey together for the glory of God. It's an amazing story. Stay tuned. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the power of your word. And we pray that you will grant us the grace to walk worthy of it. You are the author and perfecter of our faith, Lord. And we, and we see so much of your truth through the power of your word confirmed to us by the Holy Spirit. And we just hold it so, so dear, Father. We also know that you are the author of our family tree. Every jot and tittle, every bit, you knit us together in our mother's womb, even down to our DNA, Lord, you are the author. And we thank you for preserving this story of Ruth so that we could recognize through her how your hand is at work in us. Lord Jesus, you are good all the time and through all the ages. And we praise your name because you are our strength and our redeemer. And all the bride of Christ said, amen. amen. Now, go and sin no more.